Hey everyone, welcome back to the Palladium Podcast. This is Ash Milton, Managing Editor at Palladium Magazine. Uh, I'm glad to be joining you guys today again, and I'm joined today by Jesse Vallevito. Uh, so Jesse uh, was the author of a recent piece in our latest print edition, Palladium 7, uh, and his article is titled Climate Change is Inevitable. It came out in March 2021, uh, and we're going to kind of discuss some of the details of that piece, but updated and a bit more about what the implications of the piece are for how we're thinking about the world. So Jesse is a PhD candidate at the University of Toronto at the Department of Physics, and he studies paleoclimate and ice-ocean interactions there. Uh, he's also on Twitter at Jesse Villay. Um Jesse, I'm glad you could join us again. Yeah, I'm glad to be back. So for those of you who have not yet become a member, Palladium 7, Garden Planet, is our latest print edition. So uh, as I'm sure many of you know, Palladium produces four print editions a year. These are beautiful, custom-made anthologies of writing that we have produced on a particular topic for the quarter. We produce original custom art and design uh, for these prints. They're meant to look beautiful in your library, on your coffee table. So uh, if you want to check out more details, you can look at palladiummag.com slash 07. Uh, that's 07, palladiummag.com slash 07. So, uh, Jesse, it's been, I think we did a podcast uh, when this piece came out, but it's been a while since we last talked, and it's been a while since you wrote this piece originally. Um, you know, I'm not going to review it all here, but the basic thrust of the piece here is that, you know, the fundamentals of the changing climate are not really resolvable with the level of coordination uh, that we currently have internationally. And second, it's unlikely that we will actually have the level of coordination uh, that the kind of like IPCC, UN, kind of Western multilateral model of how you deal with climate change works. Instead, we're going to have localized adaption, localized models. I mean, actually, one of the other 07 pieces um, focused on this, the, the North Korean environmentalist ideology. Um, that piece was from Dylan Levi King. So this is something, I mean, in a way, the stuff you laid out in your piece uh, originally has definitely continued to influence our thinking in a lot of ways. And I think that there's a lot of you know, it's a top-level observation in which there's a lot of stories to tell. I'm interested to hear, like a year and a half out uh, here, what what's your reflections on, on your original piece? Yeah, <clears throat> so I think we've seen a lot of things happen uh, in the last uh, year and a half, and I think probably the one that's most in important to the the piece is the way that the international community responded to uh, Russian action in Ukraine. There were a lot of analysts who were surprised by how swift it was, uh, no pun intended, to remove the ability to do international banking, freeze assets, go after um, powerful people who were abroad. So I think that perhaps this shifts my opinion of what types of action the I guess, governing structure, if you want to call the UN that, is willing to take to combat these types of uh, issues. Though I, I do think that one of the problems with climate change is how slowly it tends to creep up. I think the other thing I'd say is that we might see movement on this a bit quicker now, because if, if you look at, for example, a map of, of which countries have been most likely to sign things like the Kyoto Accords, the Paris Agreement. Uh, it's a lot of Western European countries who have more or less been energy dependent on Russia for a fairly long time. Um, and this is now threatened. It's really easy to say, OK, great, we got to reduce climate um, issues when you've kind of exported all of your carbon production to another country. 
winters are going to be less fun, I think, now in a lot of Europe. And I think you're going to see uh, reflections of this in what types of talking points people are considering. Well, I'm, I'm amazed personally at the update we've seen on nuclear in the past, like, three months, literally. Oh, yeah. I, I It's it's really wild to see how, you know, people, and I mean, this is even maybe an interesting, like, like opportunity for us to, to, to sort of self-critique our assumptions about how strong, how adaptive the Western uh, institutions are. Now that there is an actual geopolitical threat, not only is the West able to actually back up an ally and mobilize incredibly well, they're also able to update. Like the, the anti-nuclear thing is not just this kind of vague position. There's a lot of regulations at the level of the European Union, a lot of entrenched interests that have gone into making that uh, that consensus stick. And in three months, we're seeing the European Union, like sustainable investment guidelines updating. We're seeing political parties in Europe updating. It's spilling over in the US, right? We're seeing, I think the governor of California has been has been signaling more friendliness to nuclear recently. And it's it shows there is a level of reflexivity here that is actually pretty impressive. The question is, can the institutions match that? So, I mean, I, I'm interested, I, I think in, in the, the prelude to this discussion, we talked a bit about state capacity. And I mean, that's, uh, you know, the, you originally wrote this piece while the pandemic was happening. Um, and that concept, I think, had become almost mainstreamed at that point. Um, what, what, you know, generally speaking, what are your thoughts on how reflexive um, the Western institutions actually are, on, like when they're pushed the way they are currently? I think that they've been like they've gone above and beyond in terms of people's expectations of how quickly they they did an about face on on this. Um, the nuclear one is always really interesting because um, you have a lot of convoluted opinions on nuclear energy, of course. Uh, which is of course tied to nuclear capability uh, for armament. You you don't really get one without being pretty close to the other. Now, of course, you know with with different reactor technologies, it's not exactly the same, but you know, to simplify it, um, if you have the capacity to do nuclear energy, you probably are pretty close to being able to have a bomb. And so I think that the West is definitely being more comfortable with developing nuclear energy for the specific narrow purpose of not being energy dependent on Russia, which seems to have actually been a more important lever than not being energy dependent on fossil fuels. I'm a little bit, I'm a little bit more concerned about um, certain other countries, right? It's a big step from going, oh, Germany and France should have more nuclear power plants to saying Iran, uh, Afghanistan, India, uh, China should have more nuclear power plants. I think that that's a bit of a different discussion because it, it, you know, it's it's easy to put a tokamak in your best friend's backyard. <laughs> really hard to have the, uh, the neighbor down the road who you don't like having one. So I think that there's that, which is which is really interesting how quickly this this talking point has evolved because nuclear is you know it's it's a complicated technology that has a lot of emotions attached to it. So people's reactions to it on the I think the ground level discussion are usually pretty knee jerk, uh, and in a lot of sense, this is like how can you have a green party that opposes nuclear energy, right? That's just because it has to do with like the philosophical underpinnings. But you know, it, it, on the on the national level, I do think there's interesting movement yeah and i mean i think india has had a sort of nuclear strategy which has not gotten that much press in the west but they they have a number of reactors operating at the moment i think they're building more so you know th there's the push for nuclear power now and the big question uh has always been where is it 
wise to build nuclear plants and i mean you know personally speaking i'm generally pretty pro-nuclear but obviously you know if you're on an earthquake zone if you're by an ocean if you're somewhere where there's regular monsoons it may not be the best idea to to take nuclear as your option and so there's this overlying consideration yeah but but that's um, that's old information right like so that's that's based on a type of graphite reactor that can go super critical right if the coolant uh is removed and this is what happens in oh i think I don't want to say every case, but uh, definitely Chernobyl. I'm pretty sure Seven Mile Island, if I'm getting that right. Um, Fukushima. The the issue with all of them is that you have a catastrophe uh, that then removes the ability to um, keep the material from going supercritical. Different types of reactor technology don't have that problem. I think I uh, I mentioned last time about molten salt reactors, but there's there's various other types of reactors that play around with how the reaction works. Uh, the, the, the simple idea is that um, if the fuel source itself is the coolant or if the mediator is the coolant, then if you don't have any coolant, you then don't have any mediator or don't have any fuel, so no reaction can occur. But yeah, there's there's safer types of, of nuclear energy. And, and to your point about uh, India, um, they've actually, I think they're set to try and increase their nuclear reactor count by about 50% uh, over the next, um, uh, they're, they're under construction now. And they want to, I think, move up to like something like 5% of their total power by 20, uh, 20, 2032. But, you know, uh, that's still a small fraction, but there's a lot of people in India, so it's still a lot of energy. Yeah, I mean, the, the, so the, I guess this is the question that I'm, I'm, I'm trying to come to here is we have, uh, we have the mobilization happening right now. It seems like, you know, to the degree that nuclear would have made a difference 30 or 40 years ago with things like emissions, it seems like we're past that initial point. So what we're happening now is, uh, you, you know, I mean, we, we know, we know governments were basically not willing to make those changes and sacrifices and overcome the anti-nuclear lobby for these sort of extremely long-term kind of collective action problems. They were willing to do it uh, for the purpose of a geopolitical threat. So here's a question then, right? And and this is where I kind of want to start taking it. In your piece, one of the things we discuss is these variations, let's say, in projected temperature rises. But um, in terms of Asia, for example, South Asia and East Asia, as far as I know, uh, are expected to see both temperature rises, but also uh, increasing extreme weather events, monsoon storms, and so on. I'm interested to hear, like... Do you think that the coordination we're getting right now, can it stick long enough to start, you know, when if events like this become more regular to the degree that like that causes instability uh, or or affects like old models of nuclear plants? I mean, nuclear India even has been building them for a while. Do, do you basically think that the coordination can stick the beginning of like an actually increasing number of crises that are now clearly linked to 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 climate or does it even reinforce it for that matter like does it make it so um evident as a political talking point that like we we need to shift now that that politicians will use those events uh to to make the current like shifting consensus stick yeah so i think to address this um it would be good to talk about what i talk about in the piece which is a shifting of alignments towards countries that are similarly affected by climate change now um i think since since I wrote the piece, what I'd update on is that um, I was a bit surprised by various nations' willingness to shoot themselves in the own in their own feet to stick with the with with NATO, for example. It, it's it hasn't been great for for Germany or France or a lot of the Central European 
powers uh, to have a fight with Russia and lose um, out on the energy. Uh, you know, Nord getting getting blown up was not uh, great for them. So, um, I mean, we, we kind of knew this with Canada in the sense that we, we don't develop our own petroleum assets all that well uh, because we have an image to maintain of being like against climate change. So I think whether or not we see changes in the coalition that we have right now are somewhat dependent on whether or not the sometimes rising, sometimes overhyped tide of populism uh, in in Western countries uh, really goes into a, an acceleratory phase because if, if you have populism rising, you could get a more countries asking more of a question of like, well, but how does it serve me? And then you'd start to get potentially um, something that's way way outside the Overton window right now, like climate change is good for Canada, could become a talking point. I think over the next twenty to thirty years, uh, depending uh, again, this is always assuming that not, that everything isn't just solved by technology uh, in the next fifteen years, uh, which you know I put that as like a thirty percent chance, maybe twenty five. Yeah, that I mean, just... solved solved by technology that you know you're immediately like well solved for who and by what and you know, whose power expands as a result of the solution and this sort of thing. I, I don't, I basically think I reject the concept of it being solved. Like there are responses that will occur and there are going to be winners and losers to those responses. And in, you know, say that we, whatever the response is actually mitigates the immediate um, threat of like uh, temperature rises or, you know, maybe we, we, we were able to instigate cooling. Well, then we just shift into now the geopolitics of there, there is some power out there that now is able to control global weather patterns. Yeah, and that's we, that's we what I'm getting the, at. The problem. Yeah, so yeah. I, that's what I mean. It's not so much that like, uh, it, it, there's no chance in like 25 years we're like back at pre-industrial or anything. And, and we can get into a bit about uh, about why um, pre-industrial is a, is a, is a poor target. Uh, but what I mean by solved is that like the solution is on the table. Like we have climate control or, uh, very gross, uh, in terms of like fine versus gross control over, over carbon emissions. Um, now that could look like getting uh, fusion working. That could look like, um, carbon recapture. There's a, there's a number of different technological routes at which point I'd say, okay, like there's a solution, on the table, but we're still going to be dealing with the like the climatological fallout for a fairly long time, perhaps a very long time, uh, depending on uh, on you know it, 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 again it's a nonlinear system, right? It's not like we put a bunch of carbon in the atmosphere for fifteen, uh, hundred and fifty years, hundred and seventy years, whatever you want to call it, and then we just take it out all at once, and it's like okay, back to pre-industrial. That's a very naive yeah, way well, of looking and, at things. And just the acceleration, like I mean, part of the issue. Part, for me, part of the thing I look at, I think this was discussed a bit in the geoengineering piece in 07, um, was, you know, the, the acceleration, the, the level at which carbon is added, right? Like that in and of itself, in, in addition to just the, the gross amount, that um, that acceleration itself is important because there there's, you know, there, there are equilibria in, in global climate and we're in a disequilibrium currently, right? Historically in geological time. Uh, and I think that that's the sort of thing people don't talk about as much. I uh, maybe to bring this um, though to what I think we want to make the descent, the center of our discussion now. You know, your piece was interesting because it did focus on these top level fundamentals of what does the picture of climate look like. I think that we we are generally 
well, I say we, let's say, you know, a lot of discussion about this topic tends to focus, you know, it lumps together the the fundamentals of things like um, carbon in the atmosphere or, you know, decline of biodiversity with the immediate policies that are being done right now. But obviously, these things stick to very different degrees. So what I kind of want to do here, um, maybe a bit experimentally, is think about the idea of grand strategy. So, you know, readers of the site will know that we published a piece recently called Everyone is Moving to the Metropole by uh, Adam Van Buskirk. And, you know, what this piece tried to do was give a model of the world on the continental level, basically, right, the different continents and spheres of influence and how they relate to each other based on extremely fundamental points, particularly demographics and fertility rates um, and level of material development and sort of give a picture of the next hundred years. And, you know, what we kind of get from that is uh, North America is actually quite uh, a, a vital continent in terms of having a lot of young people, a lot of young migration and a high level of development. And it's actually very hard, even even in, you know, the atmosphere of, say, institutional decline to whatever extent people that is going think that is going on, uh, it's very hard to lose, to, like, go to the bottom with those priors. Africa, uh, we have a lot of young people. In a lot of the continent, there is not yet a high level of material development. There's even an interesting question of whether those countries will even complete the material development. But so, you know, these are the kind of long-term fundamentals that define, you know, two to three gener- the next two to three generations. And I kind of want to do something similar here with the global map um, under your model of climate change, Jesse. And I think that this is... Uh, what makes this interesting is that it highlights, you know, that there are consequences, even of these long-term observations for personal action, for what is wise for a country or even, a you know, a billionaire, a, per- a person with a personal empire to do, what countries they set up in, where you build your supply chains from. All these things matter based on what you think the long-term, you know, next several decades are going to look like. Uh, and you know, it, it might even highlight some contingencies in the thing. So I, I guess overall, I've already mentioned we, you know, this piece sort of projected that there's actually a high level of contingency in terms of how different regions respond to climate change. There's not one political model, there's not one technological model. Um, but I guess, uh, you know, maybe as an opening question, I'm interested to see, uh, you know, given the, the, the updates in your thinking that you mentioned, you know, put us at 2100, do you fundamentally see the Western alliance or, you know, the American empire, whatever you want to call this thing, as having survived in a recognizable yeah. form? So I, I think that a big question here is uh, what can really only be kind of called, I, I hate the term, but like China's neo-colonialism in Central Africa Um I think that how that goes is going to have a lot to do with uh, what goes on in terms of America's global power. So um, I, I'm, I'm a big adherent of the idea that um, the death of the American empire is a pretty much overstated opinion uh, based simply on the fact that people tend to derive that opinion from from very high level thinking. Whereas if you just look at like a logistics point of view, um, in terms of moving goods across North America, it's much easier than moving goods across any other country, uh, sorry, continent, because of the uh, the waterways, the two coasts, the fairly flat, like, there's no central mountain range separating the ability for people to, to move. There's no large deserts that prevent uh, egress. 
Um, so I think that in terms of like, uh, unless things fundamentally change in a way that they haven't really changed in in a, a number of centuries, uh, America is always going to stay pretty powerful. Um, whether or not it closes in on itself and moves back more towards like an early 20th century, more isolationist type of uh, point of view. Um, that one's a bit harder to make a judgment call on. Um, but I, I think in terms of uh, the piece you mentioned, um, I was reading through it. And one of the things that struck me is that uh, a lot of the young world is those places which are going to be hit hardest soonest, I would say, in terms of impetus to uh, emigrate. Um, so young world, places like Bangladesh, right, um, southern India, places that are low-lying and close uh, and, and um, floodplains. So you have those people who um, are on the, on the cusp of maybe being able to support their economies because they have a younger workforce. But that younger workforce is going to be uh, given an impetus to leave based on changing conditions. Um, so I see that there, there's, a nice, there's a nice overlap in terms of uh, those regions. Now, a lot of the young world, I believe, is also uh, the, like, um, the Middle East, which is a, an interesting case. Uh, in and of itself, given what's happening in, in yeah, yeah, uh, given what's yeah, happening parts, in in, uh, in in Iran right now, uh, we'll we'll see if uh, if how that develops. Um, but yeah, well, here maybe this is a useful way of of, of doing this. I, I kind of want to build, um, let's say, a more original model and not just use the the one from that particular piece. I think that's usually. It's interesting to see, you know, how much these things converge. But so your your key point about, you know, these areas where there are a lot younger people and higher fertility, this is kind of projected to be the anvil of a lot of the heating that goes on as a result of climate change. So Africa, you know, when I've looked at the IPCC report, Africa, most of Africa is expected to have rainfall decrease larger than average temperature increases i think three to four degree increase western sahara is expected to be above four degrees which is pretty wild um and you know so we and like you have a, a continent with this many resources and this many young people uh that you know i think the popular view is okay well the, the, these changes will basically just exacerbate the the population pressures and it'll be an added pressure. People will want to escape the heat and they'll be migrated to Europe or America or wherever. And I think that's probably true in a lot of ways, but I think that um, sort of just accepting that Africa is almost like ceded territory because it's getting hotter is pretty dumb. Like the natural resources of this continent don't go away in 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 the uh, situation of, of climate change and you know certain parts of the continent like east africa i think are even slated to actually have more precipitation so you know china's doing agriculture there more precipitation this benefits a patron and so like this is the kind of thing i i'd kind of like to look at you know let's take the let's take the situation say 2070 2080 where we have the average temperature in Africa up like three and a half degrees, you know, and, and even hotter in the West, say. Um, in that scenario, you're going to be dealing with, you are not going to be dealing with people abandoning Africa. America will still be there. I think France will still be there. I think China will certainly be there. Uh, you know, maybe even new powers are coming in. I guess what I'm interested in here is what, you know, what kind of strategy uh do those powers have in a continent like this so i'll I'll throw one out 
you have a, a population that's displaced uh, to a very high degree because of all these pressures, that's good for labor. So you're doing mining operations still in the Congo. Uh, you're doing agricultural operations in East Africa. I think basically what you have here is a situation where companies and countries with the appropriate amounts of capital and people willing to go into dangerous environments are going to be able to be uh, fortune makers, basically, on the African continent. The mix of people and resources there, all the pressures we see now that make for making fortunes in Africa, all of them increase as a result of climate change in Africa, I think. Like, I, I want to put that on the table and, and see what you think of it. Yeah, so just uh, one, one point of caution I'll, I'll make about um, average temperature rises, uh, and this may not apply to the statistic you're quoting, is that um, it depends on what the area of average is. So, for example, 70% of the world is water. Water has a is less reflective of heat than land. So um, I think this is true. Uh, I'd have to double check it, but I believe that every point on land is actually above the average um, if you take the whole world or, or something pretty close to that. Um, so just just a point of caution when, when taking those uh those quotes, um, but but to your to your point, I I agree that all the pressures are mounting in in, in that direction. I I think one of the things um, that's going to be a big problem is, is energy, right? So um, if we if we just say okay, um, Africa, India, uh, specifically, I'll say like Nigeria, lo locations that are really growing their population, trying to industrialize. If we say okay, cool, um, let's industrialize. That works well. Uh, we'll be using a lot of fossil fuels. The only other option is to kind of leapfrog over the um, over that way of, of producing energy and going right towards something more nuclear. But the the, the outcome, I, I don't see the West just giving nuclear capacity to Africa. Um, I don't even see them letting them have it without some sort of oversight. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I just I don't I don't see how they would possibly let that happen. Um, I mean, given given the stability of a lot of the regimes there, I think it would also be foolhardy. Uh, given that you know, if, I don't know if if Senegal had a nuclear power plant, you'd have to be checking every couple of weeks to see who who's in control of it, right? At least in recent times. Um, so I think that uh, stability has to lead before energy. Uh, capacity and the way to the way to move that faster is what China is doing, which is essentially go in, uh, build hospitals, build uh, infrastructure, but with a you know with a hook attached. So I think that there will be a lot of opportunity to do this in Africa, but I think that China is about you know at least a decade, decade and a half ahead in terms of developing their plans to be a major partner in that compared to what the West has done. I think partially this is because the West um, is somewhat scared of, of involvement in Africa politically based on the fact that uh, it can be branded neocolonialism. Um, but, and, and I mean, to a, to a certain extent, that's right. But I mean, if you, if you go in and bring infrastructure, right? Like it's, it's, it might be nicer. It might be nicer this time than the scramble for Africa. But if well, you... people say this, I don't know if this is true. <laughs> I like, like, 
do do we not do we not bring in infrastructure i mean we launder it through the you know the the infrastructure of the development industry but you know bill and melinda gates foundation or us aid or Af you know even africom like there there's so many ways we project that you know i i i tend to think that the neocolonialism thing is a bit of a sham i think that um in in the sense that this is something that western powers are very concerned about i think it does change how america in particular markets how they exercise power in africa but yeah. first of all you, you know you have several european powers foremost france very present in africa in very traditional ways french citizens you know owning industries a literal school of economic warfare that trains people but because america i mean you know let, let me say something here that i'll just leave on the table america was one of the foremost anti-colonialist powers when it came to plotting to overthrow the old european empires and because of that america has always been entrenched in presenting the growth of its power in this kind of like equal partnership multilateral you know language you know it, it it's kind of one of the the great like the the strongest examples of the liberal democratic model displacing the kind of older colonial model in terms of how power gets exercised however they're still there right there's still you know troop advisement infrastructure companies i think the question is going to be do they keep the loyalty of governments and that's the thing i think america is not really understanding how to do currently we've been you know the west has been able to lecture africa a lot uh for a lot of years and even though you know people you know, I've talked with people who point out, well, you know, the, the Kenyans, for example, seem to think that they can probably survive Chinese influence in the long run. But you have to, especially if you're dealing with a continent that's becoming a very high pressure continent in the next like three generations, uh, you're probably, I mean, in a way, our, you know, the Western bargaining power goes up. Uh, people want immigration. I mean, heck, giving kids entry into western universities as a bargaining ship right all these things come on the table and, and already are in a lot of ways but uh that's that's different from carving out a really like a sphere of influence that is uncontested right where right now one of the effects of the american model is that like political loyalty I think it's that's the thing that the neocolonial um, objection starts to center on. How do you demand political loyalty from a government, right? Uh, it's without it just obviously becoming a vassal state. That's a question that America probably has to face for Africa. Yeah, and and and, and one one thing I'll say is that infrastructure, like building roads and hospitals, is one thing. Uh, building uh, tokamak reactors uh, in Kinshasa is another. Um, and I think that. It's it's definitely possible to kind of do like soft. Um, I, I want a better term than neocolonialism, but like you know, soft soft handholding towards uh, energy independence uh, and and political independence. Uh, when what you're doing is like building up fundamental infrastructure like roads, um, power grids. But um, I, how you how you manage the handoff, right? Like the okay, um, we've built this infrastructure. Uh, or we've helped you build it. We've co-created it. Now we're gonna let you guys run it. Like, do we get in a, in a situation like a permanent back office situation where like France and and uh, and Germany are like forever kind of like running the numbers on the energy uh, on the nuclear programs in say uh, Congo, Nigeria, um, yeah, Botswana, like. 
or or do we actually get a handoff right so i mean this is this is the thing is that it's almost like um you know history repeats itself right there's a there's a bit of a scramble for africa in terms of where will the young labor be directed right is it is it going to be directed to the the you know the old world towards uh european powers um they've i mean they've they've been trying to do this for a while and they've had some pushback in terms of uh immigration um again I, this goes back to like whether or not populism actually becomes a real thing that needs to be contended with uh or if it's one of those overhyped things that doesn't actually matter right like uh, so what i say is um I would say if we don't see like a major European country essentially close its borders to African immigration, then populism was overhyped. That would be my my uh, kind of line in the sand. Um, I you can talk about having kids as much as you want, but you but know. I mean, here's a question. You know, we're we're men you're mentioning the nuclear power. I think the the assumption there is that development you know this this there's all been this assumption that at some point um african states start reaching you know european or even american levels of material development of income and so on uh is there any reason i mean are why are is there a justification for assuming that africa will like quote unquote finish development uh i if we're dealing with high high pressure higher political instability like the the 90s through the 2010s uh you know not for everywhere in africa but there was this whole arc there was a period of about i think 15 years or so where i think most african states had become democracies most had become market economies right it was the you know it, it was sort of africa's experience of the the liberal democratic consensus and the post-soviet consensus and all this stuff and uh, what we're seeing now is that that, you know, that consensus seems to be eroding and we're seeing the number of coups increasing and we're seeing population movements increasing. And even, you know, the, the, the giants like Nigeria have ongoing civil conflicts in entire swaths of the country that are ba founded ultimately on uh, ethnic and religious and demographic divides that do not go away and that there don't really seem to be uh, stable ways to overcome like the building of a kind of civic nation state is not happening in a lot of places i mean you know e ethiopia is another example southern ethiopia uh has a, a lot of groups in it that the government effectively wants to ethiopianize and those populations are resisting it i i don't uh i do not see the fundamentals for africa finishing development i think what we end up getting there is uh you know zones of the country or of the continent rather zones of the african continent um particularly around the big capitals like lagos or addis ababa or uh you know uh, cape town which are pretty much first world fully developed you know you you live there you walk around the security is fine uh it feels like you're walking around a metropolis but you drive you know two and a half hours out and it feels like you're in a rural part of Syria or something. Um, that That's sort of my image. I'd be interested to hear what you think on that. Yeah, question. I think, I think this actually comes down to a question of whether or not China's approach to Africa stays how it has been, or if it moves to a more kind of uh, direct form of, um, uh, let's say uh, resource management, uh, where that resource is, is labor, what have you. Um, I could see China 
essentially colonizing uh, in in a in a more direct way than I could see the West doing it. Uh, you know, I could I depending on how China's star can, continues or doesn't continue to rise, um, I could see them making a case and saying, well, look, uh, this region has been unstable for like three decades, four decades. Um, we're going to send a peacekeeping force to restore order. Uh, and but you say colonize here, you basically mean, uh, you know, explicitly installing a friendly government or something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah, precisely. I mean, they don't have the population, they don't have the population to be doing No, but they've been you know, building population the population colonialism. But they, no, exactly, but they've been building the goodwill, right? I mean, what's the saying? Uh, every time Britain comes, we get a lecture. Every time China comes, we get a hospital. Um sure, so like I think that there's definitely a case where uh and, and this could be a completely bloodless coup where China says, "Look, you know, we've We've been giving you these hospitals. We've been helping you guys out. Why don't you let us help you guys out with, you know, achieving stability? Uh, and, you know, I mean, they're, they're, they're already positioning themselves to, to play that role by the stance they're taking with Russia and the West, by, uh, by s taking the mediator position of, hey, guys, like, let's all keep our tempers, tempers down. So do you think that the Chinese approach in Africa uh, is to, you know, let let you know say china in kenya do you think their strategy is to finish the arc of development or what's what like what do you see that long-term goal as being yeah well i mean i think in terms of finishing the arc of development that's a bit of a nebulous goal um i think that one of the one of the strictures that china isn't bound by that we in the west are bound by is the pretense of democracy and so china can say, look, you know, we can help you run things. Uh, and they actually have more options available than, for example, a United Nations uh, or European effort would, because the European effort is very much stuck on democracy and uh, giving people a, a vote. Um, and, I mean, you could correct me if I'm wrong here, but my, my, my understanding is that when you try and impose democracy directly from a situation where, from the outside, uh, immediately, it doesn't work as well as when it's kind of a natural thing that grows out of a population that has, uh, you know, come to decide. Sure, I, yeah, I think that's generally and, obviously true. And so I think that that because we're trying to, we we tend to try and skip that. And this is you know what what happened, like you mentioned, where like there's a 15 year period where like kind of democracy had hit every part of Africa, and and now look where we are now. It, it didn't really stick. Uh, in some places. Other places, they did a bit better, a bit of luck of the draw. But I could see, you know, given that China is moving towards a more kind of like, I, I don't want to say middle position because it's not really an axis, but a different position. Um, I could see it stabilizing things more in the in the, in the the short term, definitely, than the way the U.S. approaches. And again, this, this hinges on whether or not the U.S. Uh, decides to continue being a, a global superpower in a direct way or essentially just says it closes in on itself a bit and says look you know we've we've done the world police thing for like a very long time now like on the order of over a century uh cool you know we're tired and i i see well, i see that i see there's i think there's some capacity for that you know the endless wars have had their toll um the the, the number of people who want to be involved in the military has gone down they're not going to do a draft so you know so he, here uh... I mean, I, I kind of, I, I almost think that we're we're falling a bit into a short-termist trap here in the sense that, like, those, I, I am almost more interested in what is the environment where those decisions play out than those decisions themselves, at least for the purposes of this discussion. So l let me, like, maybe ask a, another question that I think puts us back in that long-termist perspective. 
one of the topics that we've discussed previously is adaption, right? So climate change is inevitable. Therefore, the question becomes adaption. And, you know, when I look at uh, Africa, you know, we're, we're dealing with different regional effects here. So as far as I can tell, um, and this is, you know, obviously simplifying it even a bit, but we have East Africa, more precipitation, everywhere heats up, but East Africa, more precipitation. And like around the Horn of Africa, I'm talking countries like Kenya, Tanzania, maybe Ethiopia, Somalia here. We have West Africa that seems to be slated to be hit really hard by temperature warming. And I mean, we're, we're dealing with, you know, Sahara here, like this is going to become an anvil of the continent. We have the central and south regions of the continent, which are uh, fairly well developed already. Um, I think that, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm certain we'll see things like crime increases. Uh, but if, if, you know, if a, the proper patrons gave the proper capital and labor investment and maybe direct management, places like South Africa, Zimbabwe, up to the Congo, I think are ripe agriculturally. Like the warming happens there, but it, it's I, my sense is it's something that can be adapted to. Um, the question is kind of where do the population flows go? Do do population flows keep flowing south on, on the continent? And then we have like the center of Africa itself, right? Congo um, and, uh, and its neighbors. Uh, and you're going to get like Rwanda, etc., and there, I'm a bit less certain. I mean, it, it seems like basically you're going to have rains shifting around. You're going to have heat everywhere. And there's going to be a bit of luck of the draw locally on whether you happen to be in a place that is kind of in in a, um, a uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, a rain. Anyway, if precipitation is actually going to increase in local areas. So, okay, we, we have this kind of overall image of the continent. Um, what does adaption look like there? My sense is that adaption looks like in West Africa, you are literally going to have to do adaption to extreme heat. In the north, on the Mediterranean, uh, populations are going to go flow north. We usually talk about Europe dealing with those migration flows, but historically those North African states have also adapted themselves to processing and keeping out population flows. I mean, Libya did this up until near the end of Gaddafi's reign. Uh, East Africa, it looks like adaption is actually going to be a beneficial kind of adaption, right? Um, opportunities for trade, opportunities for agriculture and export and so on. And then, you know, the center and south, I think that the shifts become less extreme. Um, I, I guess I, you know, I've painted a very top level picture there. But let's take, for example, the west and the north, right? The, these are the, the cases where states have to deal with extreme flux, both in population movement and in temperature. And I'm interested to hear, do do you think they manage it? I mean, this is where the question of does the African development arc make it in time to technologically solve those problems locally happen? If it doesn't happen, it seems like you actually just start do you, you just do start getting um, heat death, etc. Yeah, so I, I think that that you're right in the top level analysis, right? So, I mean, if you, if you look at a map of Africa with the Sahara Desert overlaid i mean there's really two africas right there's africa north of the sahara and there's africa south of the sahel um and you know we're, we're talking about uh, what is it like roughly a thousand kilometers or something from um i mean and you can look at this historically right north africa is part of the mediterranean uh and it it, it has cultural similarities and you know at the, the you know i mean if you just look at a map it's not far from tunis to to what is it sardinia 
uh, Corsica. I can never remember what the the bottom one is there. Uh, you know, look at look at going from Morocco over to Spain, right? Um, so I think that given that we've already experienced in the West of Euro in Southern Europe an influx of immigration, and and you can see who's complaining the hardest are the Italians and the Greeks, uh, and that makes sense um, given that that's where people end up. So I think that the the long term approach here is actually for uh for Europe to focus on northern Africa uh in a kind of getting the Roman Empire band back together type way because that's a, it's a natural divide right the Sahara desert is a is a paint across even today you, you have to take a plane yeah like to to put it a bit differently if population flows northward are the common threat uh or you know perceived as a threat for both Europe and North Africa then, like, the Sahara becomes the natural wall around which those states orient themselves, something like that. Yeah, yeah, and, and, the, and it would benefit Europe to essentially maintain that wall, right? Uh, if, if the, if the, it's easier to, uh, to let a bit of immigration from, say, Morocco, uh, Egypt, Libya, Tunisia uh, come in, uh, and, I mean, Egypt is, is probably less likely, probably more Morocco and... and, uh, and, and um, Algeria, uh, it's easier to say, you know, look, great, we have a shared cultural history. Um, let's work together. Then I think it would be to uh, integrate population flows from from further south. Also, um, it, 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 there's a natural division here where China China says, okay, we're going to take the um, you know we're going to take East Africa uh, and work on that, and Europe focuses more on on the north as it has historically. So yeah, I think twenty one hundred. That's what I'd expect to see is is uh, a greater degree of cooperation across the Mediterranean and uh, a greater degree of of Chinese presence in say you know Ethiopia, Somalia, Eritrea, and, and I mean those that 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 Horn of Africa. That's the, you know that uh, right around um, that region is is some of the most unstable places in in Africa. Uh, so I think that the you know I I can see why China might be might be focusing on those regions, right? Um, they also have a, a ton of, of mineral wealth um, and uh, resources. Um, so yeah, uh, 2100, we see, uh, we see new Beijing in Ethiopia uh, and uh, the Roman Empire back together in very broad terms. Yeah, well, it's the security question here, I think is the big one. And my sense is that from the projections we're going with here, um, being able to provide security, especially on, like, say, the Saharan frontier um, for operations in, say, the Congo, like mining operations, uh, that's going to be a hugely profitable um, industry, effectively. And, I mean, you know, we already see, uh, I mean, everyone kind of knows, like, Wagner Group activities. You have all these different outfits that provide security. Sometimes they work in parallel with states, but the, the the there's this question um, of do you have people from Europe and America under pressure from you know economic developments in the next few decades? Do you have anyone going out to you know the global south to Africa or elsewhere um, to make it on their own? And I tend to think that for you know people doing that the natural thing for a lot of them to go into if they have the training is security be that's like oceanic security for shipping operations 
um, on the East Coast, be that uh, ground security for mines. But what we actually have here, maybe, uh, you know, like if we're taking this Great Wall of the Sahara model, um, these states like Morocco are going to basically want security and population movement. And it strikes me, I mean, this is precisely what America has been trying to sort of specialize in in the last like 10 years or so, right? The border wall, the Mexican border and the desert surrounding it, um, which form a kind of like natural anvil that people have to cross if they want to get into the country. And so I, you know, I can sort of picture, I don't think that those similarities will be lost on on, on too many people. Like this, this is an interesting development, right? Natural borders have always been stronger uh, in some ways than purely political ones, right? And being able to strengthen or respond to growing natural borders, I think that is going to be, you know, people who are able to do that properly. And, and you know, in, in the U.S., the U.S.-Mexico border is effectively along a natural boundary, right? This is less of a problem. African states' borders are not on natural boundaries a lot of the time, right? They, I mean, the, the classic problem of, right, tribes divided, etc. Um, and, and usually those discussions focus on, you know, okay, you have Tutsis in multiple African states in Uganda and Rwanda um, in, in, in the DRC, but what you have now is these more natural borders forming. And, you know, that makes me wonder to what extent we start, like that starts overriding in the hard hit regions, the old ethnic divides. Like for how many generations do you have to have the same tribe on two sides of a desert border before that common identity starts just kind of melding away or becoming, you know, something new, right? Like this is the sort of separation that breeds um, the development of new tribes. So that's, I mean, that that's something that I'm interested in. And I think that it's, you know, the people kind of reinforcing or, or, or maybe breaking through those borders are going to be the people who make fortunes, uh, right? Because those are always very hard problems to crack. Um, anyway, I, I, I do want to kind of look at uh, regions other than Africa in this discussion, but I'm wondering if there's anything more you want to say on this. Yeah, yeah. I was, I think, I think the last, I think just the last thing I'll say on that is that, um, yeah, there's definitely a soldier of fortune aspect, uh, both in the kind of economic sense and the literal border security sense. Um, I do think that there's probably going to be a mismatch between the people who are able and willing to emigrate to Africa and the people who have the skill sets and desire to serve in those roles um, as we move forward. Uh, I, I think, you know, we talk about brain drain, and I think there will be a brain drain. They're certainly happening right now from places like the Bay Area. Um, and the, the places they're going now are very uh, temporary. Um, but I think what will happen eventually is that you'll have more of a nomadic community of, uh, of, of these people, as opposed to, uh, say, starting a new physical location. If you have the means to, like, if you have the means to get from, say, Madrid to, to Berlin frequently, why, why should everyone settle in one place, right? So I, I, I think that with, with, with a growing divide between the people who are uh, able to do this type of travel and type of movement and the people who tend to serve in militaries, uh, you, you might have to have a more organized extraction of these people, like, say, uh, you know, a, a, a Peace Corps type 
thing, even maybe privately run to get people to, to come uh, on, on a larger scale. But that's, I think that's the last thing I'll say on, on that. Sure. Well, why, why don't we move? I don't think we're going to kind of get to like the, all, all the different regions here. Um, I mean, it may even be that there's better ways to break this up than by region. But, uh, you know, let, let's look broadly at Asia, both Central, Southern and East Asia. And here, um, you know, m m my sense here, I mentioned this earlier, but the extreme weather events, this is where we're seeing... Um, adaption on the level of cities as being this extremely important crunch point that people have to you know prepare for now if they're if they're wanting um you know if, if they're wanting to kind of set up their politics or their business ventures in in this sort of somewhat long-termist way um I, i'm interested to hear though like like that's a very broad statement in terms of the the extreme weather stuff how much of a problem do you think this actually is or you know maybe to put it differently can you actually just have you know regions we know get hit by hurricanes or monsoons badly every few years and this is just a frequent thing and there's property destruction and rebuilding happens after like to what degree do you think that uh, we actually get uh, adaption happening in those regions yeah so what I'd say is that uh, if it takes you a couple of days to build your village a month or two, then it's maybe tenable to have that happen once every couple of years where the society has to come together and rebuild it. But like if, if LA got wiped off the, the face of the map, I don't think like people just wouldn't rebuild it. There's just too much. If it was happening every five years, you wouldn't build a metropolis there. So I think that this is part of the, the, the conundrum is that if you just overlay a population density map, I'm just like looking at, at like India, Bangladesh, and Pakistan right now, right? Like this is, and I mean, down the coast through Burma, Myanmar, uh, Malaysia, you just, you look at these regions where there are tons of people and they're getting hit, right? Maybe, what, conservatively once every decade or two with a, a major event. Um, it, it's happening multiple times in a person's lifetime, right? These are not places where you build huge metropolitan cities but these are also locations that have like collectively billions of people living in them so i think that as these groups of people further industrialize and further uh have expectations of permanent infrastructure which you really need to to kind of run a modernized society um there's going to be a real question of like well where do we do it so like i mean like look at bangladesh right like you you have uh um like dhaka's their big uh I mean, if you just if you just look at a map of Bangladesh, like the the further you zoom in, the more waterways you see, right? It's it's a very low lying area. Um, so how how are you gonna how are you going to? And, and I mean, that's it's a good point. Is that Dhaka is like pretty far in? It's about what like halfway up or so. Um, so where what are you what are you gonna do uh, in these regions? Well, I think one is that people leave. People who have the means to leave do leave. Uh, and that further increases kind of the problem because those are the exact civil engineers and planners that you need to address these long-term problems. And it's, it's not like Bangladesh is unaware of this, right? They have done a tremendous amount of work to prevent villages from being flooded away. Uh, it's just that you're fighting uh, against, you know, the ocean, which is a, a hard thing to fight against. 
Um, so, so I think in, in that kind of like, I, I'll say like the, in the Bay of Bengal and Arabian Sea regions, right? The, the countries bordering them, which contain so much of the, of the population, uh, you know, like that's, that's Karachi, that's Mumbai, that's Chennai, that's, um, Dhaka more or less. Uh, and these are also those locations that have fairly young people who are, um, as we know in Canada and the U S, uh, very successful when they move here, very upwardly mobile, uh, and producing a large number of uh, of emigrations. Um, so, so, yeah, I, I I guess um one question like let let let's let's add into the picture here, um demographically what we're seeing at the same time is in East Asia extreme demographic decline. Even in South Asia, I mean Indian reproduction is higher still. But the trajectory seems to ultimately be like like we're talking the end of the century. It seems like it's going to converge more or less on East Asia, maybe a little higher. Um, so that to me is an added layer here. And you know, I I, I think that there's this kind of assumption that 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 used to get made, where like, okay, well, but that smaller population now means that. Um, you know, there's going to be decreasing energy usage or, you know, there, there, there's ultimately uh, not going to be as much pressure on new inflow into the cities. What we also know now, though, is that, uh, you know, younger, when there are very few young people in your society, uh, I mean, Japan is a good example of this, the, the innovation stops as well, right? And if you're in a situation where rapid, uh, you know, response to climate crisis to you know extreme weather events to temperature changes where rapid upgrading of cities is now a norm do you even have the population able to live in that kind of city in uh, a, a place where you know the average age is 48 and the reproduction level is like 0.7 or something i yeah. I, w I wonder if you do yeah so one thing i'd i'd, I'd ask about here is that like when we take like a single number average uh, for a country as varied and large as China, I think that we maybe don't get the full picture, right? Um, and I think we just, we, I mean, what I'd want to look at, I don't know if it exists, would be like uh, demographics by province in China. Because I imagine that it, it might be the case that, uh, so Japan, uh, definitely, they have an aging population and like they're fairly industrialized, um, like they're a first world country. So, uh I buy that one. But when we talk about like China and India, um, I wonder if there's not a rural urban divide uh, in, in that sense of population demographics. And the other thing I'd say is like, how, how much do you trust the self-reported Chinese uh, statistics though? Yeah. I mean, that's a good question. I, I don't have a strong case uh, on, on, on the, the trustworthiness. Um, I would say, okay, here's a couple things. First of all, we know that, um, you know, b based on looking at the responses of the one child policy, for example, that the th there are literally millions of people that don't exist on paper. Right there. The, the, there's an immediate change in, in the population size there uh, to the the upward end. Right. More people than are officially estimated. Um, on the other hand, uh, you know, are. I'm sure, right, the, the amount of internal migration in some areas is totally underestimated, right? 
not everyone is going to be re-registering when they move to a city or something. So I I basically think that, yes, very likely the uh, numbers on things like absolute population and the distribution of population are not correct. The question is whether they're correct enough, right? And it's like, to me, the... Again, right the, on the fundamentals. Okay, uh, is is China's population, you know, plus minus fifty million in the next five years? That's an important question. But unless we're for the next hundred years, unless we're claiming that like the fertility rates are actually above replacement, or or conversely that like entire regions of China are actually almost empty and unrecorded as such. I don't know if it does make that much of a difference, right? Like, if the fundamentals here are China has, uh, you know, like a less than 50% uh, replacement rate uh, and and those and those populations are converging on cities, I, I mean, do, does, does, you know, how, how big of an error bar starts to matter again for the long term? Yeah, so one, one thing I'd say is that um, India has a fairly typical like population graph you know the one i'm talking about where it shows like women on the right men on the left is like but china has one of the weirdest ones i've ever seen um i think i i I might i just sent it to you actually um that is a very weird population graph right it's uh it doesn't have a it doesn't have a nice single peak it's like quadrimodal right and you see some really weird features for example uh you know what what killed everyone like look look at the very weird cutoff at 60 right like that that looks like manipulated statistics to me right because it's also equal on both sides right like the the, the thing is symmetrical right and so we we're not i mean we're not we see a little bit of female surplus uh sorry i should say male surplus uh in the in the younger generations which is uh probably from the one child policy but it doesn't look huge uh and then we see of course female surplus near the top because men die younger but other than that, in the middle regions, like people from 60 to, say, 25, it's pretty, you know, reasonably symmetrical. But, yeah, I, I would say like, the thing that stands out to me most here is this really weird, like, dip at 60 and then regrowth up to 60. There's, like, unless there's a plague that I'm forgetting about uh, or something, and there totally could be. I might I might just be forgetting something that happened that killed off a bunch of the 60-year-olds. Um, well, this looks manipulated. The thing, the 60-year-olds, I mean... Great leap forward would be the thing that comes to mind, um, and that's not affecting them directly. That's affecting maybe the older generation. But the thing is, the re- the reproduction levels were high even after the great leap forward. Yeah, and we see so, that. We see that with like. But I mean, if you look at this graph, right? Like there, it should just go continuously from sixty down, following that curve up to a hundred. That weird gap that's shown on both sides, uh, like where sixty and sixty-five. Or de- like that age gap is suppressed. Uh, that does seem a bit odd to me, uh, and it, it also does seem odd that there's a, another dip at like between fifty and thirty. Um, but yeah, it it, it is concerning well, how, so, how so, small. So I, I guess let, let me just re ask my question though, right? What um, like let let's let's allow for a very high level of error in all of these numbers. Um, I, I guess my question here is, what is the number that you think is so so wrong? Like the magnitude of the error is so high that it changes our like hundred year projections 
from what like you know the kind of consensus is that I laid out earlier. Well, I I think it I think the consen- the the one for me that does this is like the the median age as being a driver of like labor force and ability to uh, run an economy. I think that if if there's significant fudging of the numbers here and combine that with significant uh, heterogeneity in the rates across provinces and regions, urban rural divide, I think that you you might not get the the uh, labor market shock that uh, would necessitate the the import of labor. From so, so like other to, to translate that, you you think there are likely more young people uh, and in more regions uh, than the official numbers state. Uh, yeah, that's one way to put it. I, I think what I would what I would say is that the the even though there is an aging population, going from that to the 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 conclusion that there's going to be a need to import labor in large amounts might not be completely valid. Um, so I, I I think that this is this is why I don't think we're going to get large amounts of labor imported to China over the la- next hundred years. Yeah, I mean I don't I I would uh, I'd reject that it does mean you have to import labor. I mean Japan is is way more at an advanced stage than China, and they are not importing labor, and it doesn't seem like they're going to. Like you know the, the, a couple other things that you could think of are that you actually just get high taxation on the young to support the social system and high capital investment to offset labor costs. You can imagine dependency on imports as industry stopping able to reproduce internally or to produce internally rather. Uh, like I, I can see scenarios where actually the labor thing doesn't matter as much. Yeah, and but I, I Japan's don't... also a special case, as I mentioned earlier, because they're like much more... Uh, culturally homogenous, much more first first world. Um, Japan will be interesting to watch, honestly, uh, to to see what how they have to do, how they adapt to their very, I think, um, well documented aging population problem. Yeah, but but so here, like to bring this to kind of to the the, the climate topic again. So in terms of China, you know, if you're taking the view, um, which I think is interesting, that there are higher like the the young population is higher than is reported um that implies that you have a population that can do adaption um better than an aging one can so you think it sounds like by 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 implication china should be able to do climate adaption extremely well or or relatively well let's say yeah i think combined with the fact that they probably have more young people than uh, is officially documented, and the fact that they don't have to deal with democracy as a uh, as a as a, a bar to making act. Like, I mean, look at one. Look at the no COVID policy, right? They uh, now uh, you can. I, I think it was maybe a bit of a heavy-handed policy, but they certainly, of all the countries in the world, have the state capacity to make climate action work. And I think also they have the capacity to. Um, Make other countries follow along, uh, if they if they so choose. And I, I think that this also goes to an element of Chinese culture having a very long view, compared to um, Western culture. Uh, I mean, it's kind of inevitable when you have civilization for that long. Uh, well, in, in one I, place. I sort of I, I'm a bit contrarian on this point. I think people overstate the long termism, um, especially politically of 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 china but i i will i mean yes i i think overall uh, i will say they're they they are on net probably somewhat more long-termist um here's here's um 
a, a question though. So, okay, if we have a country here, like by contrast, uh, you know, Korea, Japan, um, like we look at like Southeast Asia, these are the places where we're, you know, the, the prediction is um, like the extreme weather events stuff that I've been talking about. Do you, it seems like if China actually has a high capacity for, um, for adaption, they also are in a position to leverage that as countries around them get hit harder. Uh, do you, I mean, do, do you see them as kind of being able to leverage um, climate crisis in that region to their favor? I think that the, the hanging difficulty here is uh, wariness with how they approach Taiwan. Um, because at, at this point, I think any any one of the surrounding countries is worried about territorial expansion um now the climate the climate change would be a very good way to address that fear right you'd only need a few disasters where china comes in provides aid and then actually leaves where people would start uh where countries i think would start trusting them and uh you know it's it's the like like you said kenya thinks that they can withstand it i i don't i don't know how long you can necessarily right you know (laughs) they build all your hospitals and roads well, the question is whether China, I think with that sort of thing, the question is whether China can enforce things like a debt default penalty um, once they've already sure, built sure, the but infrastructure I think... in the country. That which, which, which is, is in fact a, uh, that's a strategically good reason to keep that infrastructure under their control, right? Because, I mean, there's this constant complaint that they don't hire locals. Yeah. Why yeah. would you? So, but yeah, in, anyway, in, the, in, the kind of, in, in what would naturally be considered the Chinese sphere of influence, I, I do think that we'll see um we'll see them gain cre- credit and uh trust as they help other countries deal with this especially i think some of the poorer countries in that region i think south korea is pretty well positioned to lean on uh european and western aid uh but for example um some of the southeast asian countries i could see china really um leveraging that like you suggested yeah I let's um you know th- there's a lot more we could say on Asia but I I think we have only about ten minutes left and I do want to talk a little bit about um Europe and North America uh, you know both of which seem on net slated to benefit right from climate change Northern Europe especially um, more precipitation warmer winters uh, warmer summers in the South North America we have um, similar effects in like Northern United States and Southern Canada. Um, the, the, like overall, that plus being an immigration destination, plus the high level of development, like, uh, y- you know, the consensus seems to be, and I think that this is correct, that um, both are in a position to benefit massively from this shift. That said, for demographic reasons, it's it seems like America gets the lion's share of that because uh you, you know they 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 can even export potentially surplus population but at the very least they're going to have a lot of domestic labor um you know to to do any of the adaption that actually needs to happen give me your sort of um your your top level thoughts there i was just say I mean, america 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 also has a culture that's able to absorb immigrants i think better than european culture can um at least historically so uh, and so this, I mean, this goes back to what I was saying about whether or not like populism becomes a real issue. Um, 
I don't see America ever like actually preventing immigration or closing its borders. I would be very surprised if something like that happened, unless you know there was a real change. But I, I what, what I want to touch on because you've got on is about how North America and uh, Northern Europe will benefit here. Is that um, as we approach actually being able to deal with climate change uh, or even not deal with it? In both cases, I think that uh, hey, maybe this is a good thing is going to enter into the Overton window fairly quickly. Um, it's it's not going to, like, I, I think it's going to happen. The first time that uh, we're able to, you know, build a, a new a new city of, like, population 100,000 in, you know, kind of north of Edmonton, like, the first time that, like, things are warm enough that, like, that seems like a viable option, there will be people, and I, there already are in, in northern, uh, in, the, in the northern provinces, uh, or, sorry, the northern parts of Canadian provinces uh, that I think are perhaps quietly pleased with the fact that it's not as cold in the winter. Do you, um, I mean, do you think we get new cities, though? That's uh, that's an interesting claim. By, by 2100, yeah. I, I think... Uh, Especially if, if we're near the upper end of the IPCC. It doesn't seem like we get new cities anymore, though. It seems like you just get mega, mega metropolises uh, with the existing ones. Yeah. I mean, like, because it's, I mean, this is sort of a, uh, like, cities arise in strategically useful locations. And the, you know, the, the most enduring cities just, like, don't seem to disappear and a, yeah. a lot of towns grow up that go bust within a generation. So, yeah. so what it, I would, it's an interesting at, claim that we get more cities. I mean, I think that I think the reason for that is, uh, especially in Canada, and I think this is also would apply in, in some of the, the, the central U.S. states that got cold, it has to do with the fact that we have housing issues and space issues in our major... Uh, part of the problem with building all of your big cities against a political border is that you are limited in terms of expansion. I mean, we're both from Vancouver. We both live in Toronto now. Um, both are undergoing, I think, incredible housing crises. Uh, as technology improves and as the climate gets warmer, I do expect to see novel attempts to uh, strike out new um, urban areas as we, in the north. And so I, what I, what I want to touch on this is that... Um, Pre-industrial, which is the the kind of uh, benchmark we give for about 1850 levels of CO2, that's that's the one that we think about as kind of the goal in some ways um, in terms of uh, carbon carbon removal. If we can just get back to that, I, I want to say that it's it's based on uh, a philosophy that the correct way for the Earth to be is as if we weren't here, and I think that that's the wrong way to start. Um, and then in addition to that. As we develop these technologies, the you know the the questions right now over how to address climate change, I think, are only a glimpse into what the discussions will be about how to uh, handle climate control. I mean, here's um you know one claim. Like, I think in North America, what we see is that the places that get hit first and hardest by climate are all kind of on the peripheries of the continent, politically speaking, in terms of influence. So this is obviously like the Arctic regions, but even the American Southwest, um, I mean, you know, a place like Houston, a place like Phoenix, these are fairly wealthy cities, but they don't exercise a lot of political power. Conversely, the Great Lakes region seems like it's set to pretty much absorb a lot of the damage one way or another or, or avoid it completely, right? And, the, you know, obviously the the politically powerful cities, uh, many of them are, you know, um, East Coast, some are on the Great Lakes, and, like, 
if those populations simply aren't feeling it as hard, that usually translates into it not being a political priority. And so I tend to think that in the next generation or so, um, maybe the next two generations, we're going to start seeing the adaption happening locally in, in on the American continent um, before like a kind of any sort of top level model arises for how America deals with it. If it ever does arise, I mean, I think that, you know, that that may simply not arise. What we'll get is sort of like consensus for how to deal with specific problems uh, and, uh, you know, like maybe some top level commitments on things like energy. But the, the you know, America as an energy supplier, um, America as a capital supplier, America as a destination for immigrants, like all all of these extremely important vectors of American power and influence are going to be affected by the shifts in climate that we've discussed. And so I, you know, right now we're still very much in the mode of like climate change is one issue and we need, you know, a strategy to deal with it. I think that this is not what you get ultimately. Like it's, you know, it, there are a number of these things. Demographics is another one of these things that is like not something that you can make one issue. It's a it's a fundamental that affects like everything else. And, uh, you know, so so th these questions to me of like, what is the American strategy in climate change are usually not that interesting. I mean, the question on what happens with nuclear, what happens with LNG, those are interesting questions of what happens with migration pressure from, uh, you know, South America and from Central America. Those are also interesting questions. But um, even on those, I think, like what we have with immigration already, right, the, the, the managing of immigration and the shifts from, like, Mexico as an immigration hub to Central America and South America's immigration hubs, those are all problems and, and uh, you know, situations that are well known on the border cities. Uh, it is not high in the consciousness of the average person in New York or in D.C. or in San Francisco. And so I, I suspect a similar effect, um, at, at, like with actual shifts in like weather and climate and heat and so on. Um, I'm, that's sort of a you know, more specific prediction I, I'm willing to put out there. I, I think that, that part of the, the, the problem with making the long-term predictions is just how uh, nonlinear the kind of reaction to climate change might be um, in terms of how technology gets developed um, and how it's applied politically. So uh, I guess we'll just have to we'll just have to wait and see in terms of uh, which way this goes. Uh, the the anecdote I, I love on this one is uh, an article saying that humans won't achieve flight for a million years came out I think 17 days before the Wright brothers first flew. So <laughs> right, right, yeah. I mean, well, yeah. I I I'm sort of. I think we'll see high reflexivity, uh, and but but actually that reflexivity is localized, as I say, and this is why like the, these top level discussions are interesting to me because very few people actually do bother to build those models. I think you know we've barely scratched the surface here. Um, I, I think probably you know fleshing this out into more like of a top level. Um, model would, would probably take a yeah. lot more discussion maybe writing but i think this is an interesting discussion um so thank you for making time jesse so for those listening uh if you want to read jesse's article in print uh you can find the details for that at palladiummag.com slash zero seven uh and oh seven palladium 07 is our latest print edition they come out quarterly uh, and you can become a palladium member 
and receive those as gifts four times a year. So again, palladiumag.com slash 07. Uh, check that out, and we'll see you again next time. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me.